Hello, welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. In this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about cinema, um, specifically, usually art house and world cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, my name is Caitlin. I'm a writer. I consider myself a dreamer. I love literature, art, poetry, and in the last five or six years since 2011, I've developed an intense, mad, burning passion for cinema, and I created this podcast as a way to share my passion for all the films that I watch. I tend to watch a lot of art house films, and um, or independent cinema, or films from other countries around the world. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know what the title refers to, it comes from an email that I sent a very close friend a few years ago and at the time I was really obsessed with movies I was watching a lot and in that email I just wrote my head isn't in the clouds my head is in films and so when I started this podcast in December of 2016 her head in film seemed like the perfect title to communicate how I engage with films how I'm always thinking of films and how important they are to me. Uh, this podcast is personal and it's raw and I talk about these films but more than that I talk about the way films are intertwined with my own life and my own experiences of grief, loss, depression, mental illness, uh, just all the things that I struggle with in life and, and so I talk in a very candid and personal way because for me, cinema is life-saving. I do not have any kind of degree in film studies. I have not studied film in an academic setting. It's just a passion of mine, and I'm very self-taught, and my journey's really only begun in many ways. So I can't offer you a huge history of cinema and, and all of those things, but I try to offer myself. That is my offering and my contribution. So um, this podcast does have a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis if you are able to or if you would like to. There are all kinds of extras and rewards that you can get access to and you can find that at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. One of the rewards for being a patron is that you get a shout out on each episode. There's a certain level where you can get that. So I just want to give a shout out to Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Jesse, Lindsay, and Olivia. Thank you all so much for being patrons of the podcast. And I just thank all of you for listening. If you're a new listener, I hope you'll stick around and I hope you'll listen again. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. I'm really glad to have you and just thank you for valuing my voice and valuing what I have to say. So today I'm going to talk about a film that I love and that is very important to me and that I just rewatched for probably the third or fourth time. Um, that film is Fish Tank by Andrea Arnold. It was released in 2009 and this 
podcast episode is going to go into the film. There will be spoilers. I will be talking about important plot points. So if you have not seen the film, you might not want to listen to this. But if you have seen the film, then you're okay. This film is really important to me. I saw it for the first time in 2011. At that time, I think it was on Netflix. And that's how I saw it. And I love it. It's very dear to me. And I've watched it several times over the years. Um, and I just rewatched it a few days ago. And it's interesting because in 2011 is when I started to become a cinephile. You know, so I was very early in my film education, I guess you could say. Since 2011, I've probably watched at least a thousand films. I average at least two to three hundred films a year. And often every week I'll average about five to ten films because I try to watch a film a day if I can. So since I've watched Fish Tank, you know, when I watched it the first time, I only had so much knowledge about cinema and I was still sort of forming my own thoughts and opinions about films. But when I saw this film, I knew that this was my film, that this was the kind of film that I wanted to see more of, that I didn't see enough of. And that is important and essential and vivid and and has something very important to say, I think. I became an instant fan of Andrea Arnold, and I have since watched most of her films. I've seen Red Road, which is really powerful and it's about grief. I've seen Wuthering Heights as well. Um, I think those are her main ones, right? I haven't seen American Honey, which came out last year, but I have seen Fish Tank, Red Road, and uh, Wuthering Heights. So I feel like I was kind of on the Andrea Arnold bandwagon pretty early before a lot of people knew about her, and I champion Fish Tank, and I've always recommended it to people, and I've always sort of, to me, it just is such an essential film, and I would include it in my essentials. So this film is so intimately a part of my life and watching it again, I noticed certain things that I didn't notice the first few times I watched it and I want to talk about those things. I want to talk about some personal things as well and you know I will say that I will get personal in this podcast. Like this episode's going to be personal and it's going to be a bit raw and I've been struggling lately with my emotions. I feel really emotional all the time and I just I struggle with depression. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's it's something that I'm always dealing with and I'm just someone who I'm very sensitive and I I just struggle to to be alive. I struggle to live and um I know that sounds really odd to say, but I I don't feel at home in the world. And I don't feel, I don't know, I don't have the words for it. But, so I watched this film in a really emotional time in my life lately. And I saw, th and I brought things to it that probably aren't there, but that I want to talk about nonetheless. This podcast is purely subjective. These are my thoughts on Fish Tank. These are not everybody's thoughts on Fish Tank. They certainly may not match up with your own. These are my words, and this is what I get from it, and this is what I feel about it. And you may have a completely different experience or take on it. So Fish Tank is about um, a girl 
Her name's Mia. She played by Katie Jarvis, um, who was not an actor until this film. She was discovered um, at a train station, I believe. And um, I'll talk about that in a minute. But this is about a 15-year-old girl named Mia who lives with her mother and her baby sister, her, well, her little sister. She's probably like eight, eight or ten. And they live at a housing estate in Britain. They are poor. They live in poverty. It's about Katie, not Katie, Mia. <laughs> It's about Mia's life on the housing estate. It's about Mia's love for dance. She likes to, um, I guess you could say, do hip-hop dancing. She she is white. It is um, about um, poor whites, really, um, on this housing estate. But there's a lot of hip-hop music, and she connects to that music in her life. And she enjoys dancing. And it's also about her relationship with her mother's boyfriend or her, her mother's lover named Connor, who's played by Michael Fassbender. And this was sort of very early in his career, I would say, about some before he was that well known. I mean, I certainly, when I watched Fish Tank in 2011, I didn't know, I think it was my first film ever seeing Michael Fassbender. I, I, I did not know who he was at the time, really. So it's about all of that. That's sort of the basic intro. Um, and just a little bit of background about Andrea Arnold. She comes from a working class background and that is what she writes about and that is um, what she likes to focus on in her film. She wrote and she directed Fish Tank. So um, she comes from that context and that's I think what she wants to to put a spotlight on and that's what's so extraordinary about this film is that it looks at poor people it looks at working class people in Britain and um and as we know around the world really poor and working class people are often marginalized they're often made invisible and even here in the United States we don't see a lot of representations of them we don't see a lot of films about them this film won the jury prize at the 2009 Cannes Film Festival and it did win the BAFTA for Best British Film in 2010. It was filmed in the Mardike Estate in Havering in the town of Tilbury and Katie Jarvis who plays Mia as I said before she had no acting experience she was completely a non-professional and she was actually discovered by a casting assistant um, in Tilbury Town. She was arguing with her boyfriend. The casting person saw her. And so that is how Katie Jarvis was discovered. So Katie's performance in this film is quite extraordinary. And I think partially that's because she comes from Mia's world. The girl that she is portraying, and I think Katie was 17. Katie was 17 when she was discovered. And Mia is 15. So Katie is playing a girl who I think she can relate to in a way, or, or that she comes from the world that Mia is living in. Um, so that's just a little bit of background about Andrea, about the filming. Um, I'll, I'll give you sort of a rundown of what I like about this film and then I'll go into more detail.
I like that this is about the subjectivity of a teenage girl. That's what captured me in 2011. So that was, what, seven years ago? Or six years ago. I would have been 22. Because I'm... Wait. I'm 28. Take away six. Yeah. I would have been 22. So I was at that time much closer to my own girlhood and my own teenage years. And I think that part of what captured me about this film is that it focuses on a teenage girl, on a 15-year-old girl, and about her trials, her tribulations, her struggles. I myself come from a working class and poor background, and I still live in that state. Um, I'm certainly not out of it. So I, I financially struggle. I come from... I come from the rural South. I live in the rural South here in the United States. So I come from a somewhat similar place. I haven't lived in public housing. I haven't lived in, in those sorts of areas myself, but I do understand a little bit of it, of not having money, of being poor or, or, or struggling financially. So that was something that resonated with me as well, um, is her class position, her status, that she doesn't have a lot of power. She doesn't have a lot of opportunity. I mean, unlike Mia, I did go to college, and I do have a college degree and a Bachelor of Arts. So, But in, in this day and age, that doesn't count for much anymore. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get a great job or anything. Plenty of people, you know, have college degrees and are barely making a living wage at most jobs. So so Mia is someone who is living in a very bleak circumstance where she does not have a lot of opportunity and and she's struggling with that. So it it's focused on a teenage girl and I think that's really powerful. She has this desire to escape that. She has this desire to get out I think she sees dance in a way as this form of escape that she works a lot on her routines her dance routines and um I think music and dance are are a comfort they're they're an escape and there's something that she really relies on in order to survive I think um and there's there's this film is also about her relationship with Connor and that relationship disturbed me more on, on this last viewing. I think when I saw it the first time, I, I did, I saw it as more benign than I think it actually was. And so seeing it several years later in my late twenties, seeing Connor, and the way he sort of manipulates Mia made me much more unsettled and made me much more questioning and conflicted about what exactly is happening between the two of them. And I'll get into that. So the thing about Mia is that she's very aggressive. The film opens really perfectly with her just sort of walking around the housing estate going from person to person she like she confronts these girls who are dancing and and she's foul-mouthed I mean 
every conceivable curse word comes out of her mouth. She's cussing, she's aggressive, she's angry, she's violent. And it's very raw. It's very, um, it's shocking. I, th I think I would say that we do not see girls, especially, or women, represented in this way. We do not see female aggression, female anger. But I think a lot of that anger comes from being helpless, being powerless, being poor, feeling like your life does not matter, that your life is going nowhere, that you are nothing. And there was something about Mia that really reminded me of Barbara Loden's Wanda, where Wanda is equally someone who is nobody, who is nothing, who is no good in her own words. Um, but unlike Wanda, who is very meek and silent and can barely talk, Mia is very um, articulate in terms of her anger. She articulates that aggression and that fury. And I've found that as I've, as I've gotten older and things have gotten harder or I've gone through more things, I've developed an anger in me, like a fury that makes me uncomfortable and that has recently uh, reared its head. I mean... I was really struggling a few weeks ago of how angry I felt at some people where I live. And I was shocked by the anger. I mean, it was just like a madness in me. And it overtook me physically, the anger. Um, I didn't act on it, obviously. But it, it and I wrote about it because I journal a lot and journaling is really important to me. I write things in, in a diary constantly. I've, I've written in a journal for at least a decade now. Uh, more, really. And I wrote, it, I wrote about it because I felt like that was one way to try to deal with it. And I realized that a lot of my anger was tied to my helplessness. That these people were doing something that made me feel unsafe. And that made me feel out of control. And that made me feel powerless. And that the anger was coming from that but the anger wasn't solving anything that I, I felt this anger it was hurting me but of course it wasn't hurting them it wasn't hurting anybody but me so that's how I tried to deal with it you know in some kind of constructive way and I have found that since then the anger is not as bad but I do have times where I just get so mad I get mad about what I've been through in life I get mad that my life is not what I want it to be that I see other people have things that I don't have and that I will probably never have and I feel angry I just I can't help it you know and I feel like a failure and I feel ashamed and so when I see Mia's aggression I think it's coming from that place of powerlessness and and it's coming from an environment where she has to be aggressive she has to be tough and strong you know this this housing estate is is rough i mean it it's you know she's got to survive in some way she is in this environment where even a girl has to be very strong but i think in those moments of anger and aggression mia is very real to us you know um 
and Mia has a really difficult relationship with her family and with her mother and I get the sense that her mother was probably probably had Mia at a young age she is a single mother trying to raise two daughters there is not what I would call a lot of love or affection or tenderness between the three of them they cuss at each other they call each other bitches they um they scream at one another um there's a point at which Mia's mom says that she almost had Mia aborted um this is this is not an affectionate loving environment but that again I think you have to look at it I don't think it's trying to paint her mother as this monster I think it's a case of her mother probably had Mia at a really early age and was not prepared for it does not have the support that she needs to raise two children doesn't have the financial stability and, and opportunity either and I think within that family there is a lot of anger and there's a lot of fury about their position in life and 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 that life is so hard <laughs> and so instead of loving one another or being really tender or affectionate with each other they turn on each other you know and then they're very ugly to each other at times it doesn't mean there's not moments of tenderness or moments of affection I guess you could say but they're all struggling and I think they're all struggling in really individual ways and and instead of supporting each other and loving each other it's just they go within themselves and they they don't know how to handle it and they don't know how to cope the mom drinks a lot the mom smokes a lot and even Mia drinks even the little girl drinks and smokes I mean they are all trying to cope and medicate themselves in some way to survive the environment in which they live in which they have been put by their government in which they have been put by capitalism I mean let's just say it for what it is you know this is poverty under capitalism and it's created by it and it's created by a government and this is an indictment of Britain but this is an indictment of the United States of any Western country that has great amounts of wealth for some of the citizens and then other citizens are left to rot and their lives don't matter and their lives are worthless and you see that at the housing estate that they're just you know they're just crammed together in this place they're not given opportunity you know this is a failure of the government and it and I would also recommend watching Ken Loach's recent film I Daniel Blake which is similar about the British um, really the British welfare system and the way that the the working class and the poor are treated in Britain and I did an episode about it where I talked about my own struggles here in the United States and things that I went through and you can certainly listen to that if you you would like to but there is a very temp tempestuous relationship between Mia and her mother her mother says what's wrong with you and then Mia just screams you're what's wrong with me and that says so much that and I would think that on the part of a child there is also a blame that is put on the parent for putting them in this situation for raising them in this way I think that's what some children of parents who are in poverty or who are working class struggle with is this resentment towards your parents that they haven't 
given you everything that you want. They haven't raised you in a way where you felt like you had everything that you needed. And so there is this resentment. And then I would think on the part of the parent, there is a shame that they can't give their child everything that their child wants and needs. So it becomes antagonistic for some children and parents. I think that, you know, the child is very bitter about, you know, having to live in this way and not having opportunity and, and not living an, a great life. <laughs> Cause that's what you want when, when you're a kid, I guess, you know, you want things and, that the parent can't give you that and, and the parent feels helpless and the parent feels powerless and I think that could be where some of that aggression and anger comes from as well you're what's wrong with me it's because you're my mother you know that I'm living like this that's what is the subtext of that comment you know of course when you're in it you don't necessarily look at the systemic issue that it's not your parents faults that you are poor it is the society in which you live it is it is these systems that um create poverty and that um that discard people and that reduce people's values and reduce the value of human life and um but you but you can't fight against that can you i mean when you're in a housing estate or you're in public housing or you're in a trailer park or wherever you are cause that's what we kind of have more of here in the south is like trailer parks for instance um you know when you're in that poverty and you're in that hopelessness you can't fight the government can you? you can't fight capitalism i mean you you could if you became a you went out and protested and stuff and I think some people who are poor have that political awakening the way I did. And I'm a socialist and I'm a leftist. And so I had a political awakening where I saw, oh, I'm not to blame for this. And my parents are not to blame for this. This is the system under which we live. This is the government. This is, this is much bigger than me. This is not my moral failing. This is capitalism, you know. But some people never get that awakening. And so they blame themselves, they blame their family, they blame their parents, they blame their children, and they end up blaming each other. And they internalize all of the pain. And I think that as well is where some of that aggression comes from as well. Mia is just, she's like this volcano about to erupt. She is so, what's the word? everything is so compressed within her she is about to blow she she has these eruptions all the time but i think she's so out of control in some ways because she aches for more than what her life is she she wants things you know and and a really amazing aspect of her is her love for dancing her desire to be a dancer it's such an important part of her life it's something that she holds on to in the midst of this really brutal life this brutal world that she inhabits and it reminded me of the power of art in our lives to keep us alive you know that's why for me books and films and poetry those things are not hobbies for me you know they're not just something I do so 
when I'm bored, you know, or something like that. These have been life-saving for me. If I didn't have books, if I didn't have films, if I didn't have my writing, I mean, I would say, you know, Mia has her dancing and I have my writing. These are the things that keep me alive. These are the things that help me survive life, Help have helped me survive the death of my father and helped me with loss. I lost my house recently. I had to move to another state. I have been through a lot of stress and a lot of trauma and a lot of loss. And I am caving under the weight of it. I am disintegrating in many ways. There's not a lot left of me. <laughs> Whatever is left is because of art. That is that is why I have not completely been swallowed by this earth, you know, or why I have not let myself be swallowed is because I am holding on. I am digging my nails into art, into films, into books, into my own writing and my own words because that is all I have. That is all I have some days. And so what I see with me as dancing is I see that. I see her holding on for dear life to this thing. And there is a recurrent um, image throughout the film of this horse. There's these guys that live in these trailers and they have this horse chained up. It's a white horse. And in many ways it's like a symbol for Mia, I think. Because this horse is is like 16. That's what they say and, and Mia is 15. And the horse is chained, much like Mia is sort of chained and imprisoned within the world where she lives. And she goes several times to try to free this horse. She tries to break its chain and she's unsuccessful. She's not able to free the horse. One time, uh, the two boys, or two men who live um, in the trailers, they come out and they attack her. Um, you see her vulnerability. You see toxic masculinity at play this hyper masculinity um, that she has to endure and it's a reminder of her own powerlessness because they grab her and she's fighting them but they're they're too strong and um, she's able to break free of them and to run away but you're reminded of her vulnerability and her powerlessness so a little while into the film an important character shows up in the form of a man and his name is Connor. And like I said before, he's played by Michael Fassbender. And it doesn't bode well the way that they first meet. She's in the kitchen dancing by herself. She thinks she's alone. And he um, he appears and he's like half naked. He's in his jeans and they're very low. <laughs> you see butt crack. So he's basically half naked. And he says that he enjoyed watching her dance. She gets an attitude with him. And he says, you've got a mouth on you. So this is an interesting thing, I think. This is the first time she meets him. I got the sense that there were men before him. That her mother probably dates a lot of different men. I mean, I don't want to make assumptions. But just the way that she sort of acted towards him. It was kind of like, oh, you know. There's another guy that mom's dating or, or whatever, you know. Because they don't have a father. 
They don't. We don't know why they don't have a father if he's just not involved in their life or he died or whatever. But we know that her mom is a single mom raising two daughters and there's no indication that they've ever had a father in their lives. So their first encounter with each other is sexualized from the beginning. That here's a 15 year old girl dancing to music and he makes this really inappropriate comment I think. But you can tell that Mia, because he's attractive, and you know it's Michael Fassbender, he's a handsome man, you can tell she's a bit attracted to him, that she does find him attractive. She watches him when he leaves. She looks through the window and she's watching him when he's not watching her, you know, when he's like making tea or something. You can tell that she is intrigued by him and that she... Um, she finds him attractive and I just want to take a moment to talk about Katie Jarvis playing Mia because I think she's incredibly natural and incredibly authentic and she conveys this complexity about Mia this I I mean I love Britney Spears so I have no shame in making a Britney Spears um illusion here but Britney Spears had a song few you know many many years ago um called one of the lyrics i don't know if this was the title but it was i'm not a girl not yet a woman and that was such a relatable song for my teenage self back in the day and it came to mind when i was thinking about mia because she is she's not a girl she's not her um little sister's age who's like eight or ten but she's not a woman. She's not 18. She's not 20. Um, she's in that in-between stage where her sexuality is starting to become apparent. Where she's starting to get, I think, male attention. Where she is, I think, she's just in this liminal state. She's not a girl. She's not a woman. And I think Katie Jarvis is able to convey that because... It's really interesting when you see Mia um, when she's out in the world. She's got these big door knocker hoops on. She's got eyeliner. She's got her hair straight ironed. She looks older than 15 at times. She looks much older. And then there's these times where, where she's in her apartment at the housing estate. And she's got no makeup. Her hair's just normal. She's in her pajamas. And she really looks so much younger and she looks so much more fra fragile and much more sensitive and tender. And so she, you know, when she leaves her apartment, she she has these like sweatpants or these sweatsuits that she wears a lot. She's really baggy. She doesn't really dress in like what I would say a feminine way. She It's almost like this uh, shield that she puts on to be able to take on the world, to be able to survive the world. But then when she's in her room or she's in the apartment, she's much more childlike or looks more childlike. Um, and you're reminded this is a 15-year-old girl. She's scared. She's unsure. She's conflicted. She's um, searching. She's aching. You know, and 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 Katie, with her performance, with with the way her eyes are at times, um, just the look on her eyes, um, 
or the look of her face, she conveys that. I mean, it's really fascinating that she had not done any, any acting before this role because I think this is a powerhouse performance. I think this is one of the greatest coming-of-age teenage girl films of all time, and I think it's one of the best performances of a teenage girl of all time. Um, it brings to mind Adele um, Exarchipolo in Blue is the Warmest Color as well. Of She carries this film. She's in almost every scene, and she is a titan, I think, in the way that she brings Mia to life. And the the depth that she gives her and the authenticity that she gives her. So I want to talk a bit more about the relationship between her and Connor. As I said, when I watched this film again last night, really, I was much more disturbed by it than I was in 2011 just because you know I'm a different person now I've matured I've grown I've learned things I guess when I first saw it in 2011 it like I said it felt more benign it felt more um, it felt like there was this mutual attraction between the two of them that developed over time and what I see in this other viewing is that he is predatory in a way and he is manipulative and he does certain things to almost groom Mia I would say um I mean he knows she's 15 he knows he knows the whole time what age she is and he does things that are inappropriate but then he also does other things that are tender and all of it feels very calculated to me, in a way. Um, there's this one night where Mia falls asleep on her mom's bed, and Connor carries her back to her bed, and he takes her pants off. He takes her shoes off, and then he takes her pants off, and then he covers her with the bed sheet. Um, so, and there's other moments that I'm going to talk about, like... Um, there's just this odd mixing of like tenderness and manipulation and it feels very predatory to me and I talk about predat sort of male manipulation of women and I'm talking about heterosexual men um, in a podcast episode that I recently did about a, a TV movie from the 1990s called Lying Eyes and that similarly um, shows a teenage girl having an a relationship with an older man and how sort of manipulative his tactics are and i saw some some of that in play with connor and i want to talk about how i think he in many ways is manipulative and but i want to talk about why i think mia is receptive to the things that he does I'm trying to think about how to talk about it because I think what Mia's feeling is not just sexual attraction to Connor as a 15 year old girl without a father 
I think it's much more complicated. And when I was watching this film, I thought a lot about myself and about losing my father when I was 16. And he died in 2006 when I was 16 years old. And it was a shattering event in my life. It was unexpected. It was sudden. And it completely destroyed me because my father was my best friend. My father was um, very kind and gentle and generous. And he wasn't perfect. No father is. But he was special. And he was extraordinary, I think. And um, I had a very close relationship with him. And I had a really deep connection to him. And um, I was like a daddy's girl, as they say. And I've thought a lot about since his death. Um, about father-daughter relationships. And I remember shortly after he died, I was at a restaurant. And I saw this little girl with her dad. And it just killed me. And I still have a lot of trouble watching things about fathers. It's not something that I can do. It's really, really hard for me to see films about fathers and daughters or even just fathers and their children. Because the thing about having a father is that you only get one. You get one father. And your relationship with your father is very unique in your life. If you are a woman, um, especially if you're a straight woman, um, this is really one of the few relationships you will ever have that is not sexual, that is not romantic. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, grandfather, uncle, but in my case, I don't have strong connections to either a grandfather or uncles. After my father died, my family basically abandoned me and my mother and were very cruel towards us and we did not get a lot of support I haven't had a support system since my father's death I don't have a family in my opinion I, I do not consider the people <laughs> related to me as family because of just there is no love there there is no connection there is no affection and it's just it doesn't exist and so I have my mom and that's my family so I didn't have some, so, so your father dies and you have this absence of a father figure. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll have a grandfather or an uncle or someone who will fill that void for you. But if you're me, if you're a lot of women, I think there is no one to fill that void. You only get one father. And there is a difference when you're biologically attached to someone. Um... Although, you know, obviously if you're adopted, you know, that father figure lo loves you unconditionally. But there is a different bond when it is your biological father and you've been with him your entire life. And you are his number one priority. And he cares about you and he takes care of you. And he loves you unconditionally. And that is the relationship I had with my father. Um, he was very, very good to me and treated me wonderfully you know um he supported me he listened to me he affirmed me and he unconditionally loved me 
I will never have that again. Ever. Um, there, there, you know, you, there is no replacement is what I'm trying to say. So once you lose a father, whether he dies or he abandons you or he leaves you, there is a hole. There is an absence there. And as a woman, you don't know how to feel it. And I think some women perhaps feel it through other relationships with men. But the only way that you can have a deep, maybe not deep, but the only way you can have an intense connection with a man is usually through romance. Is through a boyfriend or a husband. Or if you're able to find a male friend, I guess, where it's not um, romantic, you know. I'm not sure. That doesn't happen to a lot of people. It hasn't happened to me personally. So, and it hasn't happened. It doesn't happen for Mia. Mia is in an environment where she has no father figure. She has no male presence in her life except for her mother's boyfriend or except for the boys on the housing estate who obviously are going to expect sexual things from her. I mean, that's just clear. She's always sort of at risk for that I think and she's always vulnerable to that so really what Connor represents for her in my mind and obviously I'm projecting here a little bit I think there's a sexual attraction to him but I think there's also this desire to have a father to have a man in your life who cares about you who takes care of you who supports you, who, who you are their priority. You are their priority. I don't know how else to say it. It's like, I might, I mean, say I had a grandfather, say I had an uncle, but am I their number one priority? You know what I mean? Like, they may have other children that come first. They may have other people that come first. But with my father, I came first. I was his everything. I was his priority in life. There will never be another man that puts me in the center of his life that way. We are blood. I am of him. I am of his blood. We are flesh. We are of the same flesh. Me and my father. There is this connection that you will never have with another man. And I will never have it. And it breaks my heart. I want him. I don't want a replacement. I want him. And I can't have that. And neither can Mia. Mia cannot have her father. She doesn't know who he is possibly or where he is. She may know that he doesn't want anything to do with her. So Connor is more than just this sexual curiosity or this conquest. I think he represents possibly a father figure someone that she can rely on and you see that develop through the film there is this scene where they go to a stream or a river and he and Mia wade into the water he catches a fish um which ends up lying in the grass gasping for air that kind of brought to mind the title for me a fish tank that you see this fish basically killed she ends up cutting her foot well, he does something really paternal and really um, tender 
which is he carries her on his back because her foot's been cut. And there's this moment where she like rests her head on his shoulder. This is, he cares about, he is performing that he cares about her, that he is showing sympathy and compassion and tenderness towards her. And you can see that she is melting under that, that she is getting this male attention. And there is something very powerful about someone caring about you, right? Someone, I, I don't know how else to say it. I don't have people that care about me in my life. I have my mom. You know what I mean? That's what I have. <laughs> I don't have this big family who calls me, who is interested in me or in what I go through. Who, who, who would miss me if something were to happen to me, okay? That's the truth. I don't matter to anybody the way that I mattered to my father. And so when Connor does these things, he's hitting directly in her sweet spot, right? He's carrying her to bed. When I was a child, my father carried me to bed. I have memories of my father picking me up and taking me to bed. Or, you know, putting me in bed, putting me to sleep. Um, you know, if I got hurt or if I got a cut, he would be there. You know, and, and Connor even does that later. She goes by his workplace and he... He puts, like, alcohol and he puts a Band-Aid on her wound. He is dressing her wound the way a father would. He is performing this caring for her, um, this concern for her life and her well-being. And that is incredibly intoxicating, I would think, for a young girl who doesn't have a father and who may never have had a father. So through her relationship with Connor... She can live out this fantasy, I think, that she has a dad, you know, that, that, um, that she has this male figure who, who cares about her, you know? He's literally doing things that a father would do for a child, you know? I do think that there is that longing for a father, for a man who will take care of her. And I think Connor plays on that and takes advantage of that. And I think it is calculated in many ways. I really do. I don't know if those moments are genuine or not. When I look at what happens later when they have sex, I don't know if they were genuine or not. And I don't think Andrea Arnold... I. I don't think she's telling us either. I mean, I think it's like, was it genuine or was it just this routine of his to try and seduce Mia in some way, you know? So I see her relationship with Connor in that way. I, I think he's being manipulative, but I think she's receiving it and reacting in a certain way based on not having a father, and I think he can see that vulnerability in her as well. And so I saw 
you know, some of my own aching there in her for a father. Because I think it really does something to you. And I think it's really hard to lose that relationship. But there are just so many inappropriate moments. Yes, there are these like tender moments, but then there's him changing clothes in front of her, him having her smell his cologne. There's this moment when he grabs her and spanks her on the butt. Um, and she just seems staggered by that when it happens. So there's all these really inappropriate moments as well um, between them. And so, yeah. She may have the sexual desire for Connor, but I think she's also desiring a deeper relationship with a man and a, more of a father-daughter relationship in some way. I mean, and he even plays the father in a way when she wants to audition for, she sees this flyer looking for female dancers and she's going to send in an audition tape and he lets her borrow his camera to do it and he encourages her and he tells her what a great dancer she is and on the night when they have sex she tells him that they liked her audition tape and that they called her in you know to to another audition and he's like oh I knew you would you're such a great dancer and so he's performing the father in that way too of being very encouraging and very loving and and really building her up and saying, oh, yeah, you're so amazing, you know. Um, and another inappropriate moment is when Connor is having sex with her mom. And Mia hears them and she walks up and she is, she's watching, you know. I mean, I guess you can't help it when you're a teenager. And he looks directly at her, t like, twice. And he knows that she's watching and he just looks at her while he's having sex with her mother i mean he doesn't stop he doesn't get spooked like no i mean most people would like cover up oh my god you know and he just looks at her and it's it's such a creepy moment um yeah he gets jealous when he sees her with another boy she befriends the boy who is the brother of the boys who have the horse and who earlier had attacked Mia. She befriends him. And um, Connor gets very jealous of that. You know. So. Um, he gives her alcohol at one point. It's just. It's just crazy to me. That when I first watched it in 2011. I didn't see this. That there is a grooming taking place. There is. A level of manipulation. You know. And he seduces Mia, and Mia's completely caught in his web. You can tell that she is attracted to him, and that she is just sort of melted under his attention, and his his care, and his concern for her. And so that scene has a disturbing element to it. And when they have sex, I mean, legally, it's statutory rape. The age of consent in England is 16. I researched it. And so legally it's rape. You know, it's statutory rape. Does that mean she said no, that she resisted? That she, no, I mean, but she's a 15-year-old girl. And, and she is caught up in 
these things that he has said and that he has done and so she desires him I think but I think she's conflicted about it too and I don't think she totally understands that a lot of what he was doing was not genuine that he was manipulating her in a way and I don't think she sees that or that she can see that I mean I don't want to take away her agency but she is she's a young girl and just like with the dance auditions she's so naive she doesn't realize that it's for a strip club that it's for exotic dancers and she goes to the to the thing and it's like all these women who are half naked dancing it's it's not an actual dance thing for like hip-hop dancing you know it's she didn't know that she thought she was going to audition for some kind of dance thing and and that wasn't what she thought it was gonna be and so again her heart's broken and then you know after her and Connor have sex he leaves the next day so she's he that breaks her heart too that this man that she felt some kind of connection to or that she saw some kind of deeper relationship with her this man that she thought cared about her and had genuine feelings for her just walks out and is gone so time and time again I feel like with Mia her heart is broken and she is trying to navigate this world that just at every turn somebody is there to reject her or to manipulate her or to exploit her or to hurt her and she just can't deal with it it's like what do you do how do you navigate this world as a young woman <laughs> who do you trust she trusted him there was a trust that he built up through caring for her leg and carrying her to bed and telling her how special she is you know this trust was built up and then completely shattered and completely shown to be fake and not genuine and not real and so she finds out where Connor lives and she finds out that he's not some single guy dating her mom he is married he has a daughter um, and I think this is also a moment where you see class at work where Connor doesn't live in a housing estate. Connor lives like in this nice little suburban development. He has a really nice little house, you know, with his daughter and his his daughter and his wife who dress really beautifully and have nice things. And I'm not going to say he's rich, but, you know, he, he has a lot more than Mia and her mom and her little sister have. He's not living in, in a in a you know impoverished state. Um, she is just staggered when she finds out that he has a family. She pees on the carpet in the living room. Um, he he has this class privilege that is really apparent, and he is someone who is exploiting other people, people who are, you know who do not have his same level of class privilege and I think what she sees in his house is the life that she never had she sees the father she never had the family that never was because here, here he is you know with this wife this daughter in this nice house and Mia never had that Mia grows grows up in a difficult bleak brutal environment at times 
you know, where she's trying just to survive, where she's holding on, you know, uh, tightly to her dancing to help her survive. And then here, here is this life that she never got to have with a father and a mother and this, this safe, secure world, this, this, uh, this safe um, development, you know, this safe suburban home that she never had with all the opportunities and privileges that his daughter will have. And um, I think in a way she wants to destroy that, the way that she's been destroyed in some way. And there does come a time when she kidnaps Connor's daughter. She's probably like five or six. And I think she's trying to punish him and I think she's trying to destroy something the way that she has been destroyed or to make Connor and his family feel the powerlessness that she feels, the out of control, the hurt that she feels, you know. Um, of course, the little girl does not die or anything. She she does fall into a river and Mia quickly gets her out and it's when I watched it the first time, I could not believe what was happening. I was like, she's really going to do this. I thought she was going to kill this child. I was like, oh my God. But Mia, Mia gets wrapped up in that anger. And then I think she snaps out of it very quickly that she doesn't want this little girl to die. I'm going to take a break. So, I'm back. So she quickly, quickly snaps out of that, thank God. Um, <laughs> but when I saw it the first time, I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> I was very worried about where that was going. But she wants to hurt Connor the way that she's been hurt, I think. And destroy or try to put a dent in his little perfect life that he is um, living, you know. And Connor tracks her down. He like runs. She starts running. And because she lets the little girl go. And then she starts walking down the road. And then he finds her. And he just slaps her. You know, it's like it's a really hard slap too. So Mia is. She's something to be discarded. Brutalized. Violated. Um she's not seen as like a scared 15 year old girl she is seen as a problem to be dealt with you know um she's a, she's gonna be sent to like this special school or like a school i think for troubled teenagers or something like that and um you know it made me think how you know when teenagers like this act out and that's what they're doing 
they're acting out. But when you're poor, you don't get seen that way. You don't get seen as like somebody who's hurting or somebody who needs love or somebody who needs compassion or sympathy. You just get seen as a problem. And that's what Mia is seen as. She just needs to be sent away to the school or she needs to be put in, you know, some kind of um, discipline, you know, the discipline and the punishment aspect that she needs to be punished is what she needs to be instead of, well, maybe she needs affection or maybe she needs um, tenderness or, um, you know, Connor says to her at one point in the film, you need sorting out. That's what he says. He says, you need sorting out. Again, she's seen as a problem. And um, she is unruly in that way. And I talked about this in, in the previous episode of this idea of a cinema of the unruly woman. That I've started thinking about films that are about women who um, who are out of bounds in many ways. Who defy gender norms who are transgressive, who are subversive in some ways, but also women who are just out of control in some ways, but they're out of control for a reason, right? They're just, they're mad, they're angry, they're, they feel things, they're excessive, they're, and I think Mia is definitely unruly in that way. She is, um, out of control she's um she aches for more she yearns for more she wants to escape her life and 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 the world where she's been brought up and she wants more than to just be seen as like a problem you know and there's just something really i think tragic about mia in that way is that who could she have been if she got to have Connor's life, if she got to have um, class privilege, if she got to be brought up in, in a nice suburban home that was safe and loving and where the parents or, or whoever was raising her had, you know, financial stability and could give her um, access to great schools and to a great life. You know, what could Mia have been? What life could she have had? And like I say, when she sees Connor's life, that's what she wants to destroy. And and I think that's partly why she's so angry about it. On top of the betrayal, that here is this man pretending he is one thing, and he's not. He's lying. He's got a wife, and he's got a kid, and he's a liar, and he's an asshole, you know. And, um, that's part of it, too. But I think there's a subtext and something unconscious going on there, too, of... This is the life she never had. This is the life she doesn't get access to. This is the life that some people under capitalism get to have. And then there's this other life that she lives on the housing estate. Or the people in the trailer with the horse live. Where their lives don't matter. And their lives are nothing. Because they're poor. And I think, I mean, recently Britain had the Grenfell Tower uh, fire. And that was a place that poor people lived or working class people lived and you saw starkly the way um working class and poor people's lives are treated that they were able they were allowed to live in conditions that led to their death 
I mean, it's horrific. I mean, I'm in the United States, and that was a huge story. That was a huge story about Grenfell Tower. Um, the, the images were horrifying, and yet they were so vivid of the class inequality in Britain and also around the world in many Western countries. And especially it made me think of the United States, how a lot of people live in unsafe places, unsafe apartment buildings or homes, and because simply because they're poor simply because they are poor. Their lives are discarded. Their lives are not seen as valuable, not seen as worth protecting or nourishing or nurturing and um, or saving. Their, their lives are not worth saving. And it's just uh, terrific in so many ways. The ending is interesting. Mia is saying that she's about to leave for the school, you know, for the troubled girls, I guess, or wherever they want to send her. And her mom is dancing to a song by Nas, the, the rapper Nas. And it's called Life's a Bitch. And the lyric is Life's a Bitch and Then You Die. And I thought that was almost the perfect lyric for this film life's a bitch and then you die and that's how a lot of people live is this life is not something that they enjoy it's not something that they um where they get what they want or they have a great life it's something to be endured it's something to be survived and then they die so many people lead lives like that lives that are just that they are brutalized and they are violated and they are hurt over and over again. And um, they never have an opportunity. They never have a chance. You know, they're just trapped. Um, they're just trapped. And I see that in Mia a bit, but she seems to get out. She's not going to that school. She's going away with her boyfriend. Um, and they drive off and the little sister runs after the car while Mia looks back and there is I don't think it's a too hopeful of a note though because you gotta think you know Mia's 15 she <coughs> doesn't have much of an education what kind of life is she really gonna have you know like what lays ahead for Mia I I'm not so hopeful about it people like Mia they get trampled on and they get left behind and they get um they get a lot of heartache in life. So I'm not sure what happens to Mia. I'm am I glad she got out of the housing estate? Yeah, to a point, yeah. Although she leaves her sister behind and you gotta wonder well, what's gonna happen to the little sister who is smoking and drinking already. She's probably eight years old. She's gotta be with this mother who is battling her own demons and is struggling a lot and is not as loving, you know, as she maybe could be or could have been under different circumstances. They, they are still, all of them are still trapped in, in this poverty and in this 
in the hopelessness and in the inequality and and the and the pain that capitalism creates you know when you're when you're poor and when you're seen as not mattering and um so there is this sense that maybe Mia has escaped but for how long and will she have to go back and and what will happen to her and how will she navigate the world now and so I think maybe when I first watched it, I was like oh she gets out and then now I'm like does she do you ever really get out do you ever really escape when you grow up in poverty you know when you are working class so few people these days really get out of it really you know get a good life because um, things are so difficult now people can't even make a living wage people can't afford health care people can't afford to own a home you know there's a lot of things that are out of reach for millions upon millions upon millions of people how do you get out can you ever get out I don't know I don't know so this is an amazing film I will I will linger a moment on the visuals the way that um the way that Andrea Arnold composes these scenes and I had a note about it had a note about it now I can't find it but um the way the scenes are composed are just gorgeous um there is the color in this film is striking it's the the walls of the apartment have like these pastel colors like pink and purple and the room where she practices her dancing is like blue it's like this beautiful pastel blue and so there's these blocks of color throughout the film and they're just gorgeous I don't know there's just this this light about the film and and the way that Andrea composes these scenes the way she situates Mia within her environment often you'll see Mia's back and then you'll see what Mia is looking at and it's just this way I think of giving you that subjectivity of Mia of engrossing you in her world and what she sees and how she sees things um, and and you watch her try to navigate and move through the world and you see her interactions with people and um, and I love how Andrea's camera will linger on little details like um, there's this chime made of seashells at one point there's this murmuration of birds that are winding um, throughout the blue sky um, there's this little snow globe I think that says I love you or something like that um, so she lingers on these little details um, in, in a really haunting way after the horse after um, Mia finds out that the horse was put down because the horse was too old um, you just see the chain on the rock the chain that had been attached to the horse there's just this single scene of that chain and that just says everything that the chain has broken the 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 horse is free in a way but the only way the horse could find freedom was through death life's a bitch and then you die that the only escape really 
is death. The horse is free through death, but will Mia ever be free? Will Mia ever escape, truly? And will her only true escape be death at some point? And, um, so there, this is a brutal, bleak film in many ways, but it's a true film and it's an authentic film and it does have moments of, of beauty, you know, the, the seashell, um, thing, the, the birds in the sky, the, the light in Mia's bedroom and, and the colors on the wall and there's there's a visual beauty about the film in some ways you know and there's just I don't know how Andrea does it but the way she composes her scenes is just stunning to me I took so many screenshots when I was watching this film I was just uh I was so in love with it and another thing I'll say about Mia is that we often see her in bed which I thought was interesting we'll see her waking up in the morning she'll be in bed there's this scene where she goes into her room and she just lays in bed because she's sort of upset. Um, she's always, she's a lot in her bed a lot. And it reminded me when I was a teenager, well, hell, even now, like the bed is your epi the epicenter of your life. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, when you're a teenager, you like to sleep in and you like to, um, Often, I think the bed can be a place of solace, a place of comfort, a place of escape. That you don't have to be out in the world. You can just get under the covers and you can sort of hide from the world. You know, as someone with depression, the, my bed is important to me. It's, it's some days I feel like I can't get out of bed. That I can't face the world. I can't face life. I can't do it. And so I, 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 that was something I picked up on, that Mia was in bed a lot, and that that was maybe the times when she was most, most free, in a way, that she could just be alone. You know, she was away from people, she was alone with her thoughts. Um, maybe sleep. Sleep was a way to escape the drudgery of her life. Um, that has been the, the thing for me, too, that, you know, sometimes your only escape is to just sleep. Um, it's what happened to me after my father died that I would just, I had no other escape. I would just long to go to sleep because when I was asleep, I wasn't in so much pain and I wasn't, I didn't have to face the reality of not having my father anymore. And so sleep was a kind of reprieve, a kind of relief from from the anguish and the suffering of everyday life and I wonder too if it, it was maybe sort of a that kind of place for Mia to to just get away from people get away from the world and have her own space to be alone and to uh and to get some some peace really from this world and um so yeah it's it's a powerful film. I think it's an important film. Um, as I say, it centers the subjectivity of a teenage girl, a working class, poor teenage girl at that, a story that we don't often see and that often goes untold. Is that what is life like for these, for people, for women living in housing projects, living in trailer parks, living on housing estates? These are not stories that we hear even now on TV or on um, 
or on films, they just don't get told. You know, a lot of the films and the TV shows that get made are much more about people with class privilege or, or the middle class or the upper class, the bourgeois. Um, and so I think that's why this film is, is really essential too, is that it's it's telling the story of a woman, of a young girl that often goes untold, of a girl who is very invisible and marginalized and um, and struggling. She's struggling in so many ways. And, um, and I think Andrea told this story with honesty. She, she wasn't trying to turn Mia into a saint. <laughs> she wasn't trying to idealize or romanticize Mia. Mia is foul-mouthed and she cusses and she, you know, she's mad and she's violent at times. And, but God, you know, aren't a lot of us when we're, when we were teenagers, hell, I'm 28. And like I said, I, I struggle with the powerlessness. I struggle with, I struggle with struggling <laughs> of like always having to struggle. I get mad. I get angry. I get out of control. So, um, that's not just for 15 year olds. <laughs> That's even for adults like me who are are trying to survive this world. And so she shows it warts and all. She's not afraid of that. To show, to show those darker moments. Those moments of violence and anger. But to also show those true moments. Like when Mia's dancing or when Mia smiles. She has some moments there where she smiles and she's carefree. They're rare. But she has moments where she is, you know, now that I'm thinking about it with blue as the warmest color, there's this amazing scene where Adele Exarpolo is dancing um, to I Follow Rivers. And it's this very famous scene. And I just saw it the other day, again, on Twitter. Um, and, and that moment for Adele is a moment of happiness. It's a moment of release. It's a moment of escape where she seems at home and she seems okay and she um yeah that's why I love that scene is that she smiles she is carefree she's a teenage girl you know she for much of the film Adele struggles Adele is sad Adele feels out of place and feels like an outsider but in that moment of dancing there's this sense of belonging, this sense that she is okay, that she is happy. You know, it's a moment of, of joy and um, pleasure, you know, to just dance, to just be free in that way. And in a similar way, in Fish Tank, Mia is free when she's dancing. And it is a form of freedom. And I want to talk about the title Fish Tank. You know, what does that mean? And, um... You know, if you if you think about a fish tank, I had a note about this. It's an enclosed space. It's a trap in a way. You know, it's this artificial environment. You know, fish don't come from fish tanks. Fish come from the sea, the ocean, the rivers, the streams. To put them in a fish tank is and it's an inartificial, it's an artificial environment. It's an inauthentic environment for them. And they have no way out except perhaps death. 
and so um I think it's I think it's about that is that here is Mia this fish in a way in an artificial environment of the housing estate of this thing that has been constructed to house all these poor people in living conditions that are not right and that are not good and they have no way out and there is an imprisonment happening an entrapment that happens and they're just floating around and trying to survive where they are um and they are a product of that environment they are a product of of this lack of opportunity this inequality what are Mia's possibilities what is the possibilities for her life what does life hold for Mia really you know she is in many ways in this fish tank you know that she can't get out of and um I think I mean that's my interpretation of the title people other people could have other ideas about it I mean this whole episode is just my interpretation of this film and I've gone on a lot of I've gone in a lot of directions but this is an important film for me it's one that I champion it's one that I recommend to people that I'll say hey you should see fish tank it's a really great film and um it's an important film in my life that I come back to, that I watch periodically. This is probably at least my third or fourth time watching it. And I caught things that I didn't notice the other times. And so this is a film that centers the subjectivity of a teenage girl trying to navigate a hostile world. Having to deal with men, having to deal with poverty, having to deal with the limited options for her life and how she copes with that and 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 how she feels about it and how she struggles with it at times and but this is a film that is so alive and is so real you know you feel like you're really watching these things unfold Andrea Arnold has just made this world so vivid and authentic and tangible to you and yet she's also found beautiful moments in it too and um it's just it's such a journey when you watch the film and it it stays with you it absolutely stays with you Mia stays with you always and um and for me personally I did see some of myself in her and I see a lot of women like her in the world you know who struggle and struggle with their own marginalization and silencing and invisibility and unruliness and how the world really can't handle them you know and, and they struggle to find a place and they struggle to really um, to find a home find a sense of belonging or peace in this world <laughs> that is really just treacherous and so difficult at times especially for teenage girls so I'm going to stop here. I've said everything I can possibly say I think about this film. Um, feel free to share your own thoughts and opinions. And, and I hope that you will see the film if you haven't seen it. Or maybe watch it again. Um, if you have seen it. I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films. Feel free to connect with me there. Um, yeah, I'll stop here. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.